Okay, I want to do a little experiment. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, I want you to raise your hand, or if you're driving, maybe just raise an eyebrow. If in the past few years, you felt a little not okay, like you've hit a wall or you've had more trouble getting out of a rut or just a little bit off your game. I can't see all of you, but I imagine everyone has something raised right now. Because life is hard in so many different ways, but the last three years, wow. And let's not forget about the huge shift in our work lives. Maybe before, if you were having the worst headache of your life or dealing with something more serious, like going through a divorce or grieving the death of someone close to you, your coworkers would notice because by going into the office, many of us were surrounded by informal support systems. But the last few years, a lot of us suffered alone at our desks. And while there were some silver linings, like a renewed focus from many companies on well-being and health, I have a feeling that some of that encouragement to take care of ourselves has faded into the background as we get back into our more regular work from home, work alone routines. I'm Tiffany Jones-Brown, and this is Remotely Curious, a podcast from Dropbox that asks all the questions about hybrid, remote, or as we call it, virtual first work. Today on the show, I want to bring our well-being to the forefront again and talk about what we can do when we feel any level of just not okay. We'll hear from my good friend, psychologist Dr. Essie Viding, who tells me it's common to experience emotional distress or even mental illness and offers lots of science-backed hope and advice. And we'll also hear from Dropboxer Morgan Miller, She works on the talent acquisition team and lives in Austin, Texas. I was hired by Dropbox almost two years ago. So after Virtual First went into effect, it was my first tech job starting where it was completely virtual first, completely remote. So it was definitely a learning curve that I absolutely loved, if I'm being honest. Morgan bravely shared her experience coming to terms with mental illness while working remotely. In the summer of 2021, I went through a lot. I (laughs) got broken up with. I had to put my childhood dog down and my mom got diagnosed with cancer all in one month. And my mom got diagnosed with cancer three years after we lost my older sister to cancer. So from some of the complex PTSD and anxiety that I have had since I was diagnosed in seventh grade. That really made me have to sit there, reflect on myself, and at least go to my manager and let them know, hey, this is what's going on. There's some days that I don't know if I can do meetings. There's some days I have to take my mom to the hospital. And it was very much, it felt chaotic, but I found light through that. More people that I worked with and on my team started Zooming with me even like later into the night, like 7 p.m., just to make sure that I was doing okay, checking up on my mom when she had big hospital visits. People sent her flowers and her big surgery was done and things like that. I feel like I was very supported and comforted through the whole entire thing. For Morgan, working from home actually changed things for the better. I am somebody who loves to 
cope with being an extrovert and being super busy. And this made me actually have to sit down and decide to do trauma therapy and really have to put myself out there and ask for help in ways that I hadn't before because we didn't have that in-person movements and facial expressions that I was so used to. I wanted to hear more about how we can help ourselves feel better when we're not doing so well, especially when working remotely. So I called up my good friend, Dr. Essie Viding. I've known Essie and admired her work for a while. She's a professor of developmental psychopathology at University College London, and she studies how mental illness develops and how we can learn to prevent it. She's an expert in the most extreme cases of mental illness, psychopathy. So I thought she could present us with a wide spectrum of what it means to feel off. Over the years, she's helped me think in a new way about what it means to be not okay. I notice, I don't know if you do, that there seems to be so much talk about mental health in culture these days and so many articles sort of proclaiming the mental health crisis. And sometimes I can read those and get the feeling, oh my goodness, we're really not okay. All of us are not okay, just based on reading that, like we all have anxiety disorders now or something. I'm curious if that's your perception how do, or how you make sense of that. Yeah, I, I think there has been probably as a reaction to the fact that mental health problems have been so stigmatized in the past and not talked about. There has been a great movement to be more open about mental health struggles, to um, talk about them more, to try and destigmatize mental health problems. But I can't help but sometimes feel whether perhaps the pendulum has swung too much the other way in that. I do sometimes worry that we are in danger of pathologizing what is normal stress and normal distress that we experience in life and none of us can avoid. We all have disappointments. We all have losses. uh, We all have uh, situations that are more demanding or stressful. So I think this idea that when you feel distressed or stressed, that is immediately this is a sign of a, a mental health struggle is is probably not helpful. And I do sometimes wonder whether, whether because there is a greater awareness, people monitor more for these sorts of things and they immediately think that this is a problem, mm. uh, which can then seek them to, for instance, avoid situations that cause anxiety. And interestingly, this is one of the characteristic behaviours of, of people who are have anxiety disorder or are prone to higher levels of anxieties, they want to avoid whatever makes them anxious. And that makes sense. You know, if you don't feel comfortable, you'd, you'd rather try and do something um, about it. However, the avoidance is often not the best strategy because it is not realistic to live true life and never experience anxiety. Let's say I'm a person who is suffering. Maybe I feel a little not okay. How do I distinguish between everyday suffering and true not okayness? And is the prescription for how I be with myself in either of those moments change? So I think like, you know, almost anything in life, there, you know, there isn't a hard boundary usually. So there is a big gray area, which I think makes it tricky for us uh, to sort of sometimes make a call. Do I really need help or do I just grit my teeth for a bit? Um, and obviously, the tolerance for that also varies between individuals. I guess my sort of 
perfectly, I think, common sense advice would be that given that it's not out of ordinary to feel distress, think about very practical ways in which you can relieve stress or or distract yourself, uh, which are also likely to be good for you. So exercise would be a very good example. Seeing friends would be a good example. Perhaps engaging in some sort of voluntary activity where you sort of essentially, instead of being inward looking, you're outward looking, you maybe help other people, you engage with other people. These are all activities that promote your health, your connectedness with other people and sort of give meaning to your life. Mm. Now, if despite doing these things, you actually feel like, okay, this has now been weeks and months and and I still, I find it really, really hard to get up in the morning and I am feeling fearful all the time or I'm feeling like I have constant panic attacks. Clearly at this point, you are entering a stage where this is impairing your ability to engage with other people, ability to do your work. And at that point, I would I would suggest that that's a point where you ought to perhaps explore that you get some external help or in some some cases for some people, it's right to get uh, medication. One thing I've loved in our conversations before is just the reminder that the basics, the classics of taking care of yourself are really important. So sleep and a sandwich and a run and a hug and take your neighbors a casserole. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's really useful. It's so, so important. I mean, the more and more we uh, we study physical and mental health side by side, the more evident it is how interconnected um, all these kind of activities and, and, and symptoms uh, are. So we know that um, having uh, poor sleep is uh, going to lead to poorer decision-making, including in terms of what mm. we eat. We know that lack of sleep, lack of exercise and eating, uh, you know, processed unhealthy foods increase inflammation in our bodies, which we know is directly connected with the uh, risk of uh, depression. So these are all incredibly interconnected. And I think trying to do small things to make good decisions in Mm -hmm. all those areas of life, I think can have a really important and really holistic uh, impact. But I think Mm. we're not that, uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as very sort of complicated uh, creatures. But ultimately, we are pretty basic animals. And there are sort of, Mm. uh, I think there can be fairly basic fixes to our existential uh, crisis. And and distraction, uh, I think, is, uh, is a very good thing. I think, particularly when you're feeling a bit better, that's a good time to explore. What's the sort of a menu of things that suits me and kind of have this resilience box, as it were, so that then when you have crappy times, you've got a routine that you've built and you've got a set of things that are sort of tried and tested for making you feel better. And then you pick from those at the time that is feeling a little bit more challenging. Mm. And there's something about building in that program a little so that you don't have to think about it so, so much in the moments when you're distressed. I'm wanting to ask you a little bit about remote work. I'm curious if you could say a little bit more about some big and small ways you think remote work has affected our mental health over these last three years. So I think it certainly brought it to a sharper focus. People talked about it a lot more. I think because people were, many people were genuinely feeling more distressed and more 
out of sorts. And I think what it did also very clearly highlight is how important social connectedness is for our mental health. I think, we, you know, we are social animals, we are group living animals, and we need to feel connected to other people to feel right. So I think, I mean, I'm not aware of there being really good studies that would have sort of taken multiple measurements over time that would allow us to really understand the kind of the mm. the emotional changes that might have happened or the social changes that might have happened. So what I'm saying is speculative based on how I know Hmm. our brains work and and how our social relationships work in general. But I think there are sort of a number of key things and these won't be the same for everybody. So one is social isolation. Now, what's interesting is that social isolation is less good predictor of your mental health than loneliness is. So Social isolation will not have been equally catastrophic for everybody. For some people, it meant that they felt incredibly lonely and that will have impacted uh, their mental health more than the people who, okay, they were isolated, but they may have been very happy about it. Uh, You know, there are people who find social interactions extremely taxing. And for them to be able to do that remotely and much more on their own terms would have been a positive thing. So interesting. Yeah, I fall into the category of people for whom remote work is actually quite lovely. I I love having time to think. I might be a little isolated, but I don't feel lonely. And I think we all know that, you know, when we communicate via electronic means, it's very hard to get a sort of a nuance across. And even, you know, we have uh, Zoom meetings or, or Teams meetings. But what's really interesting about these meetings, I I was talking to a colleague of mine who studies social cognition, and I said, you know, I I see everyone's faces, but it just doesn't feel right. And he said, well, in normal conversation, you use eye gaze to do turn taking. And you can't do that on Zoom. So normally we sort of we we look around the room and we use eye gaze signal to think, you know, who's about to come in on a conversation, whose turn it is to speak. And we've all been on kind of Zoom calls where three people start talking at the same time, then everyone is quiet at the same time. And it's enormously taxing. It's exhausting. Um, so I think that we had curtailed social interactions and then what social interactions we had were unsatisfactory. And I think that over time there's this wear and tear where it just makes you feel tired and it makes you feel unhappy and it makes you feel low and out of sorts. But interestingly, the pandemic wasn't bad for everybody. And in fact, it actually could have been a huge form of relief for people who had extremely stressful run-ins at work. Like, for example, people who said they had difficult, intense interactions with coworkers at their office reported that they were happier working remotely because they got some distance. Same goes for bullies at school. So... It, you know, much like any any kind of sort of environmental factor, it isn't a sort of one size fits all and it has the same impact on everyone. I guess I guess maybe maybe one more thing to add here is that one sort of individual difference variable, which we haven't really talked about here, is uh, is your, you know, whether you are on a spectrum of having attention uh, deficit issues or not. So for people mm. who may have difficulties in in kind of regulating their attention, actually, the homeworking might not have always been easy because the work would have 
perhaps provided structure and task Mm -hmm. and suddenly finding themselves in a situation where they might have had to be more independent in how they manage their time and targets could be a lot more difficult. So, you know, your compensatory mechanisms are no longer enough when your life is burdened on multiple areas. And then you have to slightly put your hands up and say, okay, now is the point at which I probably need a little bit of bit of help. What do you think are some things that managers or leaders or those in charge can do to support their employees when they're not okay? I I actually think that the very big thing is, you know, rather than waiting for something to go wrong, would be what I would call uh, instituting working practices that are preventative. So that that can prevent, um, you know, the work at least precipitating mental health crises. So I think, you know, if you can establish a supportive working atmosphere where people can check in with each other, the manager regularly checks in with the workforce about, you know, how you're doing on this project. Do you need extra help? Do you feel like the team is contributing in a way that is helpful? Do we need to restructure some of the ways in which you run things? I think modeling work-life balance, modeling working effectively and being present when you're doing the work, but also talking about having things outside your work, you might see that somebody is struggling a little bit and you might take them aside and say, you know what, why don't you have a long weekend this week? Mm. We'll manage. You'll go and have a long weekend, book yourself to a spa or go for a long walk or, or, or whatever it is that you do. We've got this. You can chip in for somebody else at some other point and there's no shame in it. Mm-hmm. Remember Morgan Miller, the Dropboxer we heard from earlier? This modeling and extra attention from her team It's what got her through one of the hardest years of her life. During the really hard weeks or the weeks where my mom had surgeries and things like that, my manager would let me just work without having to go to meetings. And that was very, very helpful. I was also able to take some mental health days. And if there were days that I had to completely take off, they just said, don't worry about it. We'll figure out who can cover for you. Like, just please focus on yourself. And I feel like that was really different. I mean, I've been at a company where I was working on a laptop in the hospital bed about to go through a procedure. So being able to be told that I can just like relax and focus on my mental health and my sanity as well as my mom's health meant a lot to me. So you can build in these sorts of preventative things and and, and checking in with people and just generally also talking about your own experience and how you manage things. And we've done in the team in the past, we've sat down and we've sort of discussed what each person finds helpful in terms of stress management. And it's been actually really interesting Mm -hmm. because there has been, there have been strategies and suggestions that people have said, oh, that's really good idea. I've never thought about that. I'm going to give it a go. So, you know, again, we're social animals. We can learn from each other. Uh, And I think that's a huge reserve that we should tap on more. Mm. Yeah, I know as I've managed people in my career that there's something about both normalizing the idea that we are humans who need to take care of ourselves. So talking about that and then proactive permission giving and encouragement just seems so critical. Not everybody is designed in such a way that they feel like they can't take a break, but plenty of people seem to be. It's also this idea that, you know, life will throw at you some more stressful periods and some more distressing periods. And work is no exception. So it is a natural part of every job that there are periods that are stressful and are demanding. 
So also just managing people's expectations that here are some periods and you'll have to write them out. And then we try and put things in place, which means that you can recover. But, you know, sometimes you have to deliver and it's not uh, and you have to do it as a teamwork. You then have to think, well, how can we set up structures which mean that people feel motivated to pull together when they have to deliver something? People know how they can find time to recuperate. There's something so soothing that can be, I think, easy to lose in the idea that, you know, experiences are like waves. Yes. Just emotional experiences, times at work. And so there will be a crest and there will be a time when it dissipates. And being able to understand where you are in the wave or imagine where you are is so different than feeling stuck in the intensity of a really intense moment and thinking it might not ever end. Well, Essie, I just so appreciate your grounded and evidence-based, but also very common sense advice. And it's been so nice talking to you. I appreciate your time. So lovely to talk to you too, Tiffany. Dr. Essie Viding is a professor of developmental psychopathology at University College London. Before I get to my takeaways, I wanted to play a few of hers. I would have to distill what I think would be an important thing in our mental health conversation it would be um, three things. One is build a mental wellness toolkit at a time when you're feeling strong. Explore and find out what are the things that you can put into your wellness toolkit so you have those ready uh, for the times that are inevitably going to happen in every life that are distressing. Second is be kind to yourself. You know, think about talking to yourself like you would talk to a six-year-old child. You know, don't demand... Uh, impossible things of yourself. Don't think that if something didn't go quite right, that that means that everything is lost and you're an an awful failure. And uh, I would say that the third thing is look outwards. You know, don't just look inside yourself. Look into your community, look into your your friends. Think about what you can do to contribute to other people because that will bring meaning to life and it will also take you out of your own headspace uh, and provide you with the social contacts and social support, which will serve you well over your life. In addition to building a well-being go bag, treating yourself kindly and getting out of your own head, know that emotions and distressing experiences are like waves. It's actually more common in life to experience an episode of great distress or even mental illness than to not. So remember that if you're going through a rough patch, you're not alone, and this too shall pass. Remember that not all social isolation leads to loneliness. If you're a person who thrives in remote work despite spending more time alone, enjoy it. But if you notice you're languishing, remember to follow Essie's tips above. And finally, if you're a leader, remember that modeling and promoting well-being, whether it's encouraging remote employees to take a walk midday, finding ways to foster connection and feelings of belonging from a distance, or simply talking about your life outside of work is one of the best ways to keep your team healthy. Remotely Curious is brought to you by Dropbox and our friends at Cosmic Standard. Our hardworking producers are Beauty Nazaro, Beck Silver, Samaya Adams, Angela Johnston, and Asia Pilar Simpson. Our editor is Nina Gensler-Debs. Our technical director is Jacob Winnick. And our executive producer is Eliza Smith. 
Our designers are April Rosenstock, Louise Camille Tolentino, Fanny Lure, Gabriella Tienda, and Justin Tran. Our theme song is composed by Doug Stewart, and I'm your host, Tiffany Jones-Brown. Special thanks to Dropboxer Morgan Miller for sharing her story, and to Essie Viding for her insightful conversations. And for more tips on staying well and remote work, check out the Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit at remotely-curious.com. <laughs>